Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you today from London. On the show today, NATO. The Western Alliance celebrated 70 years at a summit this week. But is the subterranean organization suffering from brain death, as President Macron claims? You just can't go around making statements like that about NATO. Is it obsolete, as President Trump said during the 2016 campaign? NATO is obsolete. I'll talk to NATO's Secretary General. And as Britain heads to the polls, Brexit is now a real possibility. We are now going to get Brexit. I sat down with the man who started it all, the head of the Brexit party, the always colourful Nigel Farage. Utter, complete, total rubbish. Also, unrest in Iran. People are rising up again, and the regime is reacting with deadly violence. I'll talk to the Iranian journalist Maziar Bahari, who was arrested in the uprising and crackdown during the 2009 Green Revolution. But first, here's my take. Republicans have rallied to Donald Trump's defense with a vigor and ferocity that might even have surprised the president. It was only a few years ago that many of them suggested he was not really a Republican and certainly not a conservative. But now, all Republicans love Trump. And purist conservative groups like the Tea Party Patriots, Freedom Works, and the Club for Growth are mobilizing their millions of supporters to fight for the president. Why? The answer given most often is that when you look past the circus and the histrionics, the president has been a reliable and staunch conservative. And while this is undeniably true in some areas, it's mostly in the realm of social and cultural policy, appointing judges tightening rules relating to abortion, immigration, and asylum. In what Republicans used to call the core of their agenda, limited government, Trump has been profoundly unconservative. Take the issue that produced the Tea Party, America's runaway debt. In 2012, future House Speaker Paul Ryan said, In this generation, a defining responsibility of government is to steer our nation clear of a debt crisis while there is still time. In his first year in office, Trump, with the eager assistance of a Republican House and Senate, blew up the American budget with a tax cut that ballooned the deficit this year to almost $1 trillion and will add nearly $2 trillion to the national debt over 10 years. Now, the hypocrisy of Republicans about deficits has often been noted. But what is more striking is that this abandonment of limited government and fiscal conservatism is part of a larger remake of conservatism itself. Trump has now added more than $88 billion in taxes in the form of tariffs, according to the Tax Foundation. Despite what the president says, please remember, tariffs are taxes on foreign goods 
paid for by American consumers. This has had the effect of reducing GDP and denting the wages of Americans. Even the administration acknowledges the pain caused by its trade wars, responding to one bad policy with another, massive subsidies to favored victims. For example, farmers. The bailout to farmers, just under $30 billion now, dwarfs the $12 billion that the 2009 auto bailout cost the federal government. More even than free trade, conservatives have believed in the idea that governments should not pick winners and losers in the economy, an idea so fundamental to republicanism that Trump tweeted it out in 2015, soon after announcing his candidacy. Yet the Trump administration has behaved like a central planning agency, granting waivers on tariffs to favored companies while refusing them to others. Salmon, cod, Bibles, and fracking chemicals are among the products that have escaped being taxed for now. In true Soviet style, lobbyists, lawyers, and corporate executives now line up to petition government officials for these treasured waivers, which are granted in a totally opaque process. All this favoritism fits very well with Trump's desire to engage in industrial policy, but shaped to fulfill his own personal agenda, not some national economic one. He consistently helps companies and workers in key battleground states he hopes to win in 2020. When he decides that he doesn't like a company or its chief executive, like Jeff Bezos, he attacks them by name. On the core issue that used to define the GOP, economics, the party's agenda today is state planning and crony capitalism. And this is what so-called conservatives are doubling down to defend. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. The leaders of the Western world gathered on the outskirts of London this week to celebrate the 70th anniversary of NATO and to continue a debate that has been raging recently about its future. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization was founded in 1949 with 12 original members. The big foe at the time, of course, was the Soviet Union. Today, NATO has 29 members who face threats as varied as Russia, Islamic terror and cyber and space war. President Trump has shaken the membership of the organization by waffling on its raison d'etre, its most important reason for being the collective defense of its members. Article 5 states that an armed attack against one or more member nation shall be considered an attack against them all. Now the president of France also believes that NATO is in very bad shape. So I sat down with the head of NATO, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, at the summit this week. Mr. Secretary General, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So I've heard um, some of your uh, defenses about many of the things that have been said this summit. You know, President Trump, after all, as a candidate, said NATO was obsolete. Now the French president says uh, NATO is brain dead. Um, And you point out there have been disagreements in the past. But this time, in the past, it was over policies or, you know, Suez or the Iraq war. This is a almost a disagreement about the existential nature of NATO itself. Should it exist? Is it functioning? Well, the clear message from this uh, meeting, the leaders' meeting this week, has been that uh, all allies, also those who have expressed some critical concerns, they are committed uh, to NATO, to to the idea of one for all, all for one, because we are safer when we stand together. 
And, and they're not only committed in words, but the reality is that North America and Europe, we do more together now than we've done for many, many years. Increased readiness of forces. For the first time in our history, we have uh, combat ready troops in the eastern part of the alliance. Uh, European allies are investing more uh, in defense. We have modernized our command structure. And for the first time in our history, we are addressing, for instance, the consequences uh, of, uh, for NATO, for, uh, of the rise of China. So, so NATO is adapting. NATO is changing. That's, uh, uh, that's what we have done for decades. And that's what we continue to do. Let me ask you about the points uh, Macron made. One was that if you listen to President Trump, he is saying, I do not take responsibility for European uh, uh, security. I do not think the threats to Europe are threats to the United States. When he talks about terrorism in Europe, he says those are your problems. In a sense, he's saying that the United States under Trump is detaching itself from European concerns. And President Trump this week said, we benefit the least from NATO of all countries. Do you worry that without the anchor of the U.S., um, NATO will not be what it used to be? So I am confident that the U.S. will remain committed to uh, NATO for several reasons. First of all, that is something the president has expressed uh, meeting the 28 other NATO leaders uh, in uh, London uh, this week. Uh, second, I visited the U.S. Congress this spring, and it was very strong bipartisan support uh, to NATO uh, in the Congress. Thirdly, if you look at the opinion polls in the United States, actually record high support for uh, NATO. And then on top of that, the United States is actually now not decreasing, but increasing its military presence in Europe. The US is leading one of the battle groups uh, in, uh, in, in the eastern part of the alliance. So the fact that there are more US soldiers in Europe, I can hardly think about any stronger commitment to European security than that. So President Trump was asked about NATO's purpose, and he said, well, in the, you know, it used to be that we were, uh, we were allied against a, a, a foe, a so-called foe, he said, who may not be a foe anymore. Do you think Russia is no longer a foe of NATO? We don't list foes. We don't, we don't define Russia as an, as an enemy. Uh, what we see is a more assertive Russia, which had used military force uh, against neighbor Ukraine. Uh, we see a more unpredictable security landscape with the rise of terrorism of, of ISIS. We see cyber threats. We see the global balance of power shifting with the rise of China. And in, in uncertain times, we need strong uh, international institutions like NATO. But, but is Russia a foe? No, we, 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 don't define, we, don't, we don't divide the world into either uh, foes or friends. It used to be said, you know, Lord Ismay's famous line, that the purpose of NATO is to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Um, what's left? Just to keep the Americans in, then? Uh, to be honest, uh, that doesn't apply today. So first of all, NATO is to keep all of us in. Uh, it's good for US, it's good for, for, for Canada, it's good for Europe that we stand together. Um, uh, Russia, well, we strive for a better relationship. Russia is not the same as the, the, the Soviet Union was where, uh, during the Cold War. Germany is now playing a more and more important role in uh, NATO. Uh, they haven't reached 2% defense spending, but they have increased significantly. So now Germany is the is the uh, second largest defense spender in Europe, just after the United Kingdom. Uh, so, 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 so we welcome that Germany is pay, uh, playing a more and more important role in NATO. Mr. Secretary General, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. 
Next on GPS, the other big buzz in Britain this week has been anticipation of the nation's elections this coming Thursday. Will Boris Johnson win and remain prime minister? Will he be able to pull Britain out of the EU three and a half years after voters chose to leave it? I'll talk to a man who was one of the few original advocates who in many ways gave birth to Brexit, the always outspoken and controversial Nigel Farage. On Thursday, voters in the UK will go to the polls. They will be voting for whom to send to Parliament from their local constituency. But the biggest stake, of course, is which party gets to name the next Prime Minister. Boris Johnson, the leader of the Conservative Party and current PM, is at the moment ahead in the polls and with the bookmakers of Britain. If he does win, he's promised a Brexit. And I would say that outcome might have been impossible without my next guest, Nigel Farage, a.k.a. Mr. Brexit. Farage has been one of the earliest, loudest and longest proponents of Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. He is the head of its upstart Brexit party. Nigel Farage, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. So this has been a tough week for you in a sense that uh, the party that you uh, that you lead uh, has four members of the European Parliament who've quit the party and urged uh, people who were thinking of voting for the Brexit party to vote conservative. The theory being Boris Johnson is the guy who's going to deliver Brexit. Isn't it fair to say that this is now the role you have been cast in in history? That is, you were one of the earliest, loudest uh, proponents of Brexit, but the, your very success is that the Conservative Party has adopted your agenda. To some extent, yes, absolutely. Do you know, in February this year, Brexit was stuck in the weeds. We had half a million people marching through the streets of London. A second referendum was the cry. Uh, we had, I think, the worst Prime Minister in Theresa May since Lord North lost North America. <laughs> and she was pretty hopeless. We thought and, he was pretty good. Uh, well, I know. And jolly well done you. Um, but this is, this is the battle for our independence, you see, from the European Union. And I just, having spent 25 years uh, building a fringe movement called UKIP to a level where it posed an existential threat to the Conservatives. They gave us a referendum. We won the referendum. Uh, I was happy in 2016 to take a back seat. But here's the thing. The Brexit that Boris has been offering doesn't actually take us out fully of European law, of the European institutions, and potentially makes even doing a trade deal with America very difficult. So, yes, I accept the point. I've shifted the agenda. Uh, we are now going to get Brexit. It's going to happen. You know, we're going to leave at the end of January. I've, I've got no doubt about that. The debate now isn't whether we get Brexit. It's whether it's Brexit in name only or something meaningful. When you look back, what do you think turned your movement for Brexit from, as you call it, a fringe, which yeah. it really was, yeah. um, into something broader. I, I, I look at it and it seems as though immigration was the central issue that seemed to make it more mainstream. Yeah, I think um, all the while EU membership, and let's remember particularly for Americans watching this, you know, this is not NAFTA. This, the, you know, this is not a free trade club with rules. This is actually the growth of a new state based in Brussels where the guys with the real power are the unelected European commissioners. And sector by sector, we saw EU rule affecting different industries. But you're right. The real mass effect was in 2004 when 
eight, then ten former communist countries joined the European Union with complete rights of free movement. Now, now, you know, if you say to people in poor countries, you can move to a rich country, what do you think is going to happen? There are clearly going to be massive transfers of people. For 60 years after World War II, net migration to our country ran at roughly 30 to 50,000 a year. Right? That was kind of, it, it worked, and we had integration, assimilation within our society. We opened up the doors to former communist countries, and that number became 10 times that number. I mean, we have had, we have had an 8 million increase in our population since 1997, and 80% of that is directly as a result of migration policies. And what ordinary, decent, not, and by the way, these aren't knuckle-dragging, racist, horrendous, horrible, but they're just normal people who saw their quality of life diminishing, their access to public services diminishing. So, yes, opening up the doors made a lot more people realise that being involved with Europe was not what mum and dad voted for. My mum and dad voted to be friends with our neighbours, to do more business with them, not to be run from Brussels and have open borders. Um, let me ask you about Britain's role. Uh, what I notice is that Brexit seems to be part of a larger Briti British kind of withdrawal from the world. And this has begun under utter, several prime ministers. Utter rubbish. It, it feels like utter that. You're not rubbish. interested in the world that much? Utter, You're complete, total Rubbish. Now look. Look at the size of your army. Look at the size of the navy. Everything is being hollowed out. Uh, foreign service is being... Is being uh, oh, I mean, look, you're, it, I'm, by I'm, every indication... I'm look, open a British, by all Open of a that. British newspaper. There's almost no foreign news anymore. The existing establishment have virtually since the Suez crisis of 1956, with a brief 10-year aberration called Mrs. Thatcher. Thatcher. Thatcher All right. But, but no, we've, our principle has been managed decline. Managed decline. Uh, and that is the defeatism of the British establishment, the thought that we're not good enough to run ourselves anymore. I want to tell you this as a Brexiteer, and in fact, I'm the father of Brexit in many ways. I view Brexit uh, far from being insular, far from pulling our horns in from the world, I view Brexit as the opportunity to reach out to the world. Brexit is about us reasserting our place in the world. Do you know, as members of the European Union, we don't even have a seat on the World Trade Organization. You know, we've become nothing. We're becoming a province of the United States of Europe. I think we're better than that. Next on GPS, I will ask Nigel Farage, who greatly admires Donald Trump, why the president is just so unpopular in Britain. Back now with more of my interview with Nigel Farage. You know President Trump pretty well. I do, yeah. Do you think that there are real similarities between the kind of what is called populism that you have you know, sparked and what's going on in America. I ask this because on the central issue of immigra immigration, it's quite different. Um, we, the United States actually has at this point, for example, net migration from Mexico is essentially zero. Uh, there is no European Union type freedom of, of sure. movement. You know, We sure. don't have vast numbers of people coming in. Um, what's going on from, when you look at it, what's going on in America? The, there are similarities between the Brexit movement 
and the Trump movement and big differences too. The similarities are the belief that the nation state is the essential building block, that there is nothing wrong, uh, nothing shameful uh, about flying the flag or being patriotic, um, and that you are naturally suspicious of organisations like the European Union with its supranational structures or even the United Nations uh, if it goes in the wrong direction. Uh, the basic belief that immigration should be managed sensibly to the benefit of a country, again, those are strong similarities. The, <clears throat> the idea that you should actually put your own people first, just as we all put our own families first and not our next door neighbours, those are strong similarities. So then explain to me, why is Donald Trump so unpopular in Britain? I mean, he's, well, he's toxic, right? I mean, Obama's approval rating in Britain was 70-odd percent. He's at 18 percent. Yeah, I mean, it's literally been wall-to-wall, anti-Trump, anti-Trump media, um, anti-Trump PC storm. Uh, nobody, I mean, literally nobody, with the exception of myself, prepared. And I always say, look, this guy, he's a New Yorker. He's from Queens. He's a bit out there. He's a bit what we would call in this country a rough diamond, you know, rough round the edges. I think many would would not call him a diamond at all. Right? Well, it's just it, it's an English expression. So excuse me for using it from our perspective. You know, the point I want to keep making to British people is that when it comes to defense, our most important partner in the world is the USA. When it comes to intelligence sharing, you know, dealing with potential global jihadi threats or whatever else it may be, our most important partner in the world is the USA. When it comes to money and investment, we are the biggest investor, foreign investor in America, and America's the biggest investor here. Just think if we broke down some of the other trade barriers, how much closer that relationship could be. And culturally, do our teenagers, do my kids look to Europe for their culture? No, they look to America. So we are, you know, we are very, very close. Let me ask you something. Trump, um did not interfere in the British elections this last uh, week, uh, mm. when many people thought he, had, he can't stop himself from opining on issues. Um, you tried to get him to on your, sh on your radio program, and he didn't. Were you surprised well, by the kind of discipline? Do you know something? If he wants to be disciplined, he can. But generally, he doesn't, he doesn't generally think that's very important. And, you know, he's, in a way, in a way, He's been a gift, of course, to CNN. He's been a gift to the New York Times and many of his opponents. Uh, but there is, a, there is a certain openness about Trump, which whether you like him as a person or not, I think is rather endearing. If you ask him what do you think of what Trudeau said, he won't give you a politically correct... Well, he, he will actually tell you what he yeah, thought. He was pretty clear. The guy's two-faced. I rather agree with him. And it, you know, We're so used now, aren't we? We're so used to these robots who leave the best universities in North America, in the United Kingdom, uh, go into uh, political research, uh, become congressmen or members of parliament. You know, we're so used to the career politician, not wanting to make any mistakes, never really telling the world what they actually think, but more what they think the world wants to hear. I think it's good to have people who've got passion. And do you think that's part of his appeal? That, oh, absolutely. That... Oh, I think plain speaking. You know, you've got middle America, the flyover states, we've got middle England. Uh, and these are people who couldn't really give a damn uh, about what our Westminster village or the Washington swamp uh, thinks important. They know what they think. And they like people, even if they disagree with their views, 
they like a certain frankness, a certain honesty. Well, and that's what we get from you. Nigel Farage, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, what to make of the NATO summit, the state of transatlantic relations and the upcoming British elections. I have a terrific panel to talk about it all. There is a lot to talk about in Britain and the world with today's great panel. Alistair Campbell was Prime Minister Tony Best's spokesman and director of strategy. Zanny minton Beddows, of course, is the editor of The Economist, the current cover story of which is Britain's nightmare before Christmas, referring to the elections. Um, Zanny, what's the big picture here in terms of what are we seeing in in terms of the, the Tory party, the Labour party, you know, If you pull back, what's the story? I think the big story is that both of Britain's two major parties have moved more towards the extreme. The Tories have moved very clearly towards a harder Brexit, get Brexit done, is Boris Johnson's slogan. The Labour Party has moved to a kind of radical socialist manifesto. And so Britons, that's the reason we we gave the cover the title it did, Britons of the centre, the moderate centre, have really no home in the two major parties. It's the choice between two incredibly unappealing extreme options, Hard Brexit, radical socialism. Um, and the Tories seem to have been remade in, in, in the kind of image of Brexit, uh, suspicious of Europe, in much the same way that the Republicans have been remade into the party of Trump. I think there are real parallels there, actually. The Tories, who under David Cameron for much of the last, you know, 15, 20 years, had, had modernized themselves, as they put it, into being a kind of outward-looking liberal internationalist party, are shifting, thanks to Brexit, to becoming a much more nationalist populist party. And their, their electoral strategy is to win the election, and it looks likely that they will with you know, a majority, by grabbing seats from Labour, traditionally working class seats in the north of England. And, and Labour, why has Labour mo- moved so far left? Well, because Jeremy Corbyn, that's what he believes. And it's true that I, th- I think it's not just the parallels in terms of what might Britain might become a Britain. I think we're seeing parallels in the nature of the campaign as well. Uh, A bit like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson doesn't really care whether what he says is true or not. He cares about the impact that he makes. Get Brexit done is just another lie. They're not going to get Brexit done uh, very quickly at all because we're now into the next stage of a very difficult process. This is, I think, unlike any election I can think of in the recent past in the UK where there is kind of outright lying on both sides and people are completely unembarrassed about it. And that sense of the system is corrupt, so getting a disruptor is fine. They all lie, so what difference does it make if he lies more, right? I'm afraid that that he has done that and he has played on that. And actually, my experience of politics is that most politicians do most of the time try to tell the truth. But when you have somebody like Trump, who becomes president and he's elected knowing that he's a liar, knowing that he's a racist, knowing that he's a misogynist, and I fear we're doing the same thing here now. And I think that is really, really dangerous for democracy. I think it's why the Russians are very, very happy with the way that it's going. And I think for the public, yes, I can see why lots and lots of people in these, in these, some of these more working class areas of the UK, they're thinking, you know, well, they've all let us down. But actually, the guy that they look like they might be rewarding for that, he's going to be the one who's really going to make their lives difficult because a hard Brexit is going to hit those places hardest of all. What did we learn about Johnson and Trump this week? He seemed... <laughs> he seemed uh, you know, very, very reluctant to embrace Donald Trump. Is Donald well, Trump that course. toxic? I mean, yes, he is toxic. And, and uh, that's, that's, that was 
frankly, a sensible thing to do, to keep as far away from Donald Trump as mm. he possibly could a week before an election in a country where Donald Trump is not at all popular. Yeah, that, hold on, that, hold on no, a minute, though. In, on Brexit, his big strategy is we can get rid of Europe and we're going to do this great trade deal with the Americans. He yeah. will pay a Had price. Have you been advising uh, Boris Johnson, you would have said, keep away from him, get nowhere near him. I so I'm have, not at all I wouldn't have said be rude that. to him. I wouldn't have said be rude to him. And I actually thought, the, I, listen, he's going to pay a price for that. Do you know, the real, the real mm. problem with a US trade deal, which is... Clearly something that, you know, many in the Tory party are hoping for. We're going to leave, you know, get Brexit done, leave very fast. Alistair's right. That's not going to be at all easy. But their great hope is a trade deal with the US. I can't see that happening. And I can't see it happening for two reasons. Firstly, it is very clear that two priorities for the Americans are one, greater access for US pharmaceutical products, or two, greater access for US agricultural products. And for good or ill in this country, there is an allergy to any sense of any access to the NHS, and there's an absolute allergy to having American chlorinated chicken. For some, you know, <laughs> people really don't want it. So that makes the politics of giving away on either of those really, really difficult. So from the UK side, I can't see how a deal gets done. And on the US side, as you know, the notion that you're going to have Congress approve a trade deal rapidly in the US political environment. And frankly, whoever wins the US election next year, I can't see this being very high. So I just I just don't see that happening. And that's a pillar of the sort of if you if there is a logic to the Brexit process, it is to, you know, have great possibility for trade deals for the UK. The biggest one out there, I don't think is going to happen. And, and, and which part of get, you know, which part of America first is but we're not listening to you yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You know, so well, I, I, I think we're going to be weakened with the Europeans, we're going to be weakened with the Americans, and Johnson, yes, he might win with his get Brexit done slogan, but he's going to find, like a lot of people do when they campaign on a pack of lies, that once they get into the truth, it gets hard. Sounds like it's nightmare before Christmas and nightmare there's after one, Christmas. There's one silver lining. Our nightmare process before elections doesn't take as long as the one in the U.S. It, does. And it so at least, you know, we get some resolution for good or ill. And it doesn't cost as much. I, I, <laughs> I noticed true. that the Tories raised 10 times as much as Labour, and it was like three million pounds. Right. I thought yeah. to myself, that's a congressional seat in America. Things on the cheap here. <laughs> it's Betters, Alistair Campbell. Pleasure to have you on. Thank, Thank you. you. Next on GPS, some say Iran is seeing its greatest unrest since the 1979 revolution that toppled the Shah and installed the Ayatollahs. Is this regime ready to topple when we come back? Observers say that the Islamic Republic of Iran is in the midst of the biggest protest since its founding. A massive fuel hike amidst a bad economy has brought Iranians in some hundred cities into the streets in protest, and the regime crackdown has been swift and violent. Indeed, a U.S. official said as many as a thousand may have died. To put that into perspective, 72 people were killed in Iran's 2009 Green Revolution. Let me bring in Maziar Bahari, an Iranian-Canadian, former colleague of mine at Newsweek. He was imprisoned for 118 days for his reporting during those 2009 protests. Maziar, what are you hearing? You run a very important uh, source of Iranian news, Iran Wire. What are you hearing about what's going on right now? Well, uh, the country is in a security situation right now, basically a state of siege. We are receiving videos of police shooting at people. We've talked to doctors. I've talked personally to doctors who've been telling me that they saw people were getting shot in the heart and in the head, even though their training says that you have to shoot people in the leg in order to disperse demonstrations. So the country is still in shock. They don't know what, uh, you know, what happened during those uh, two or three days after the uh, 
a protest, during the protest. And people, many people in Iran want regime change now. What they want to change the regime to, that is a big question. And there is no uh, cohesive alternative to this regime. There are some people who support Reza Pahlavi, the son of the uh, former Shah of Iran. There are some people uh, who support different groups. Uh, even the leader of the Green Movement in Iran, Mus- uh, Mirosein Musavi, who is under house arrest, he has basically said that you know, the Islamic Republic is dead and that Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, reign is illegitimate now. So the regime on one hand, is seeking legitimacy and is trying to crush people's protest. And on the other hand, people are facing a new reality. They knew that the regime was brutal. They knew that the regime was violent. But in the last two weeks, they've seen it with their own eyes. And many people in Iran, it's difficult to say how many, what's the percentage, but many people in Iran, they want the regime change. But as you say, um, it isn't clear what that would mean because there isn't a clear opposition. Uh, in 1979, they said, death to the Shah, long live Khomeini. Exactly. So today, if they say death to this regime, death, death, death even to the leader, who are they saying long live? Well, some people say that long live to Reza Pahlavi, who is the, the, old, the, the, yeah. the son of the Shah. But, but my sense is that's a minority, right? But we don't know whether they're a minority because it's <coughs> very difficult to report in Iran. It's difficult for the reporters who live in Iran to report on the streets. All foreign media, they've been banned from reporting in the streets. They've uh, shut down the Internet, of course. Some cities still don't have Internet. It's very difficult to communicate with people. And people are still in shock. So, But the regime also must be paying a price here because, I mean, you shut down the Internet. In today's world, you can't do banking. You can't do... Exactly. Right? What is interesting is that many... The Iranian is using the Chinese technology in order to shut down the Internet. And many Iranians are using the technology developed by Chinese uh, opposition uh, in order to circumvent those. Uh, so both, are, both sides are both using sides Chinese are using, technology. And I think Iranians are, they see themselves as part of this global movement, which is from Chile to Lebanon, to Iraq, to Hong Kong. How does American pressure play into this? Because the U.S. in the Trump administration has put a lot of pressure, a lot of sanctions on the regime. When the uh, American government sanctioned the Revolutionary Guards, that meant that many financial institutions that are owned by the Revolutionary Guards, they were subjected to sanctions. Because right now, uh, Revolutionary Guards is not just a military force. It is the biggest industrial institution in Iran. It has many uh, universities. It has many hospitals. So all those institutions within the Revolutionary Guards were subjected to sanctions. And as a result, Iranian people are suffering. The U.S. now says it's going to deploy forces to deter Iran in the, in, in the, in the Gulf. Not quite sure what that means, but again, ratcheting up the pressure. Do you think there's a likelihood that something 
explosive could happen in the next few months? Well, I hope not. But in this very volatile, very explosive situation, something can happen that can be counterproductive for the U.S. and for Iran. And a military confrontation with the U.S. frightens many Iranians who still are scarred by years of war with Iraq. And they do not welcome it. They welcome uh, President Trump's speech who uh, expressed solidarity with the Iranian people. They even uh, uh, support certain sanctions against certain human rights violators and Iran's nuclear program. But a war with the U.S. that will result in many deaths and much destruction is frightening Iranian people. Mazia, pleasure to have you on. On that happy note. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. We will be watching what happens next, and we will be back. You heard my interview earlier with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg here in London, where the alliance was celebrating its 70th birthday. You may know that NATO has only invoked Article 5, its agreement to treat an attack on one ally as an attack on all, once in all that time when member states closed ranks to support the United States after 9-11. But that wasn't the first time a member state was attacked. It brings me to my question. Why didn't Argentina's 1982 invasion of the British-controlled Falkland Islands trigger NATO's Article 5? Britain declined help. The U.S. vetoed. Attacks in the Southern Hemisphere don't count. Or everyone forgot about it. Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Tell You Everything You Need to Know About Global Politics by Tim Marshall. This is a good idea, superbly executed. The book explains the world starting with geography, which in many ways is an ideal starting point. It explains Russia, Ukraine, Kashmir, Tibet, Iraq, all through the rich lens of the map. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is C, while NATO's Article 5 designates an armed attack against any member to be an attack on all members, Article 6 specifies that only attacks on territories or forces north of the Tropic of Cancer count. So when Buenos Aires took aim at those rocky islands with more penguins than people way down by Antarctica, Britain was to fight alone. But don't get it twisted. Just because NATO didn't intervene on the Queen's behalf in 1982 doesn't mean it wouldn't today. Invoking Article 5 is ultimately a political decision in the hands of NATO's ruling body, meaning even unconventional threats to the alliance's overall security, like the attacks of September 11, 2001, can mobilize the combined might of 29 nations. Of course, that can only happen if the organization survives the remainder of the Trump presidency. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.